Yeah. So it seems like 30 years now, it, uh, 30 years later, it, things haven't changed. People are still interested in that book, in that coach, in that mentor. Uh, not surprising, uh, somewhat disappointing because school, that tells me that school hasn't changed in terms of how they teach money. People aren't getting the information they need. Unfortunately, they're not. What's good, everyone? Thank you so much for tuning into episode 66 of Highly Invested, where we invest in ourselves, talk about personal growth, and we ask entrepreneurs and high performers about the best investments they've made in themselves that help get them to where they are today. Hey, everybody. So today on the show, we've got the real estate investor from Toronto, Canada, Jim Chong, back on the show. Jim hit millionaire status and retired early thanks to self-education and actively building his investment portfolio in his 20s and 30s. So I had Jim on the show for episode 42 to share his story, but I brought him back on to walk us through three of his biggest or his best investment deals so that we can learn firsthand what Jim looks for in an investment, what he avoids, and his thought process through the entire transaction to help us understand, think like, and apply the tactics of a millionaire investor. So everyone, please welcome Jim Chong back on the show. How are you doing today, Jim? Hey, Jordan, doing fantastic. Thanks for having me back. Uh, pretty excited to be here. Glad to hear, man. I'm, I'm happy to have you on. And uh, it's Things have changed, but also haven't since the summer. How have you been? I'm doing really good. I can't, can't complain. My um, TikTok channel is now over 60,000 followers and uh, we Amazing. have a, a ton of people. Like I can't remember how many, like almost 2000 people subscribed uh, to, to us as well. So they're getting regular financial literacy education by email in addition to our uh, TikTok channel. So it's fantastic. Doing great. Amazing. And so are you getting, do you find you're getting like a really good response from TikTok than just some of the other channels? TikTok uh, right now is the best for building an audience quickly. Yeah. Instagram right now, there is something uh, some, like a wealth inequality. The people who have the big followings five years ago are reaping most of the extra gain. Whereas if you were starting fresh on Instagram now, mm -hmm. it's more of a climb. Like the algorithm is not friendly to new uh, customers, it's more uh, friendly to people who are already popular and they want to make them more popular. So right. Instagram is, is more geared for people who are established. TikTok is for anyone who's looking to build an audience quickly. Yeah, no, it's a great point you make, though, because well, my, my first thought, though, is like, do, do you have a different sort of audience metric on TikTok than on Instagram? Like, do you ever look at the analytics and know that like your viewers on TikTok are a lot younger than the audience say on Instagram? Yeah, the, the TikTok so this is very interesting. So TikTok in general skews younger, 16 to 21, I believe, is the uh, median age of a TikTok viewer. However, Which from, is perfect, though, for financial literacy. Just want to add, it, like, that's what we want. It, it is perfect. But I've noticed also, because since I've been collecting uh, people to subscribe to us to, mm. to get more information on email, that my subscribers tend to skew 10 years older. Okay. So that's very interesting to know, too, because you know who's watching, but you don't know who's actually willing to move forward to continue their education. So someone who's 16 might say, I'm in high school, the information is nice, I'm going to follow, but I really can't act on much of this stuff. Right. Whereas someone who's 10 years older, 26 might say, listen, I want to subscribe to the email information because not only are the TikTok videos useful, but the email content is actually some stuff that I, I can take action on. I have the ability, the means and the motivation to do so because I'm 26 or 36 right. as opposed to 16. Absolutely. Well, they have some money saved up so they can actually take action and, and yeah, use your practical tips. 
That's right. Nice. And so when did you roll out that email list? Uh, the, actually, very very recently. So um, I started on TikTok about a year ago, about this time last year, and we've hit 60,000 uh, within a year, obviously. So uh, the email list literally started a month ago, and we have almost 2,000 subscribers within a month. Amazing. And, and, and so are you sending that before you uh, send people to your book, for example, or do you have any specific email campaigns you've launched? So not particularly campaigns. So what happens is all my TikTok videos... Uh, or TikTok allows you to advertise a link. So if they uh, click on my profile uh, in my bio, it will right. immediately take them to the subscription page where it describes what kind of information they'll be getting if they decide to join us. Um, and also in my videos, I also mentioned that uh, that link exists and that they can also get more information that I can disseminate over a 30-second or 60-second video because there's only so much content you can give out in 15 to, to 60 seconds. Right. right. So, sure. so right now the, the link in my bio in TikTok will send them to like the first thing they get is a free guide to speed up uh, their education, to reach financial freedom faster. And it's a free guide, five steps that they could take uh, to, to do that. So that they get something right away once they join uh, our list. Fantastic. And so Jim, do you mind just explaining like, why do you see so much value in building up an email list? Because it took me a very long time to get this, especially uh, it took me after I got into at least trying this entrepreneurship game, but um, you know, Gary Vee talked about it starting his email list in the late nineties, even what's yep. the value in having an email list over time. So an email list separates people who are casually browsing. Like if you think about running a store, yeah. so if you run a store, there are people that walk by the window who are just sort of their eye gets caught by what's in, in the store shelf mm -hmm. and they'll walk past. So those are people like who watch uh, TikTok. Oh, people on right? Instagram. So they, yeah, exactly. Those are window. Shelves. They just sort of look, but they're not really interested in more information. So someone who subscribes to your list is someone who, who walks into the store, starts asking about prices and maybe even buys something. So that is considered a more active customer. So customers have different levels. Right. Uh, and I believe some internet marketers like uh, Brunson and um, Jeff Walker, they mentioned increasing the heat of the customer. Because for example, like when you're dating, if you just meet someone and you just say, hi, let's go back to my place, that customer will leave. So you need to actually increase the temperature. So it's like you have a conversation, you go out to a, a dinner, you go out to a show, and then the relationship builds that way. So someone who is willing to go on the email list is already showing interest above and beyond someone who just sort of walks by you and looks back. Yeah. So that's why it's important to have an email list because not only are you, you want to sort of separate people who aren't interested in anything except for a glance, right? Yeah. Uh, so that you're the, in the future as an entrepreneur, all entrepreneurs want a paying customers. So it's important to, to, to basically separate them out early. Yeah, that's a great answer. I love that analogy too. the window shopper versus the person actually, you know, whether they're buying something small or something, at least if they're buying much like correct do that again. That's great. Thanks for that, Jim. And so, yeah, what's new in Toronto? Has anything uh, have you done anything new in the summer? Bought any new properties? <laughs> no, nothing has really changed. Uh, I, I invested in the stock market every every year. I've, I've invested in the stock market every year for like 30 years. So that hasn't changed. Uh, starting a new company, uh, another company. I started a company back in the 90s. Uh, I also started my my real estate uh, business uh, during the credit crisis. And so now I'm starting my third business, which is uh, around financial literacy and, and offering coaching. So I start businesses based on what people tell me they want. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, when they start a business, they do it kind of backwards. They're like, I want to do this business. 
but then they don't know if if the market really wants it but they, they want to do it so right. I, I don't really care what i want to do so when i put out the content that i put out and then people will start telling me what they want so they will say i want a book that's why i wrote the book because after people started asking for that hundreds of people started asking i realized okay so they want a book um, right so you're like putting the feelers out there and then waiting to see what people are saying I don't even put feelers out there. I put out my content, content. which is yeah. what it is. And then people will say, is there a way? Um, how it started was right. after I made about 300 videos or 400 videos, I have over 2,500 now or something I was like going to that. say, that's incredible because on Instagram, you've even posted 1,500 already. Like, a lot of content. Yeah, that's awesome. It's a, it's a lot of content. So I put out a lot of content. And then what, hap what ends up happening is someone who comes to my channel now you know, after seeing 2,500 videos, they might go to video number 52 and say, hey, do you remember when you talked about this in video 50? Honestly, I don't. <laughs> I don't remember what I talked about 2,000 videos ago. Um, and I got more and more of that. It's like, can you expand more about what you said on video 22 about real estate? I'm like, you know, I don't. It's like, do you have a book where you summarize your content? And I'm like, I don't. So the I'm very empathetic to what the customer wants because I know if I push something out that I want, it's really irrelevant. So when the customer starts saying, I need some place where I can read everything in a single go, like in a book, mm -hmm. uh, if that's what they want, then I put them to the test. I, I set up a pre-order page to see if they're willing to put their money down to back up what they're telling me. Because if they're not willing to put money down to back up what they're telling me, then it really doesn't benefit anyone for me to write the book. Yeah. That, that's very true. So after that, now it's the, the, a lot of people want mentoring. And I totally empathize with this because when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, I was looking for the book. I, I, you heard in my last podcast, I was looking for that book. Right. I was looking for that mentor, that coach. The secret or at least. Yeah. So it seems like 30 years now, it, uh, 30 years later, it, things haven't changed. People are still interested in that book, in that coach, in that mentor. Uh, not surprising, uh, somewhat disappointing because school, that tells me that school hasn't changed in terms of how they teach money. Uh, people aren't getting enough. Yeah, people aren't getting the information they need. Unfortunately, they're not. So even after I left uh, or graduated back at the turn of the century, <laughs> even before that, school was very poor for financial literacy. And apparently 30 years later, they're still bad at it. So um, people are now asking me for coaching, but it's impossible for me to coach people one at a time. I have a family. I have like a daughter. I have other things I want to do. So I, I created a business, built up team, built up a team, and we're going to start seeing if we can do group coaching where it's, it's not large like TikTok, where it's like thousands of people talking to me and I can't really give a proper attention. It's going to be small group learning, multi-session going to be huge amounts of value and it's actually going to include the information that i wish i got back in the 80s that i had to piece together over a quarter century like like and so they don't have to go through 25 years of piecing stuff about real estate stocks psychology yeah, money the amount of time you're you know. saving them is, is exactly it's a quarter century <laughs> like basically i'm building something that i wish was available to me because I paid for everything separately. If I wanted to learn about stocks, I would pay to learn about stocks. If I wanted to learn about real estate, I would pay a guru to teach me about real estate. It would be a lot of money right. and it would be all over the place. So I'm, I'm trying to build that now. Uh, team is working on that. So that's pretty exciting. Amazing. And so just curious then if, 
I know we talked about this briefly before, but have you gotten any feedback from from any of your um, audience yet where they would want to host that or how they would want that delivered to them? Not yet. Okay. We haven't. So I'm building the infrastructure. I'm, I'm building the infrastructure right now. Um, it's going to be online just because of the whole virus situation. Yeah. And um, we're going to keep it small. I, I No more than 30. I think 30 is a little too much, okay. uh, but we'll see. Uh, 30 people uh, together, there's enough interactivity for them to get a lot out of it. It's going to be multi-days. It's going to be once a week. The idea right now, and it could change, mm -hmm. it could be once a week for the next month. And each week is going to cover a different topic. Maybe maybe once a week for every for six weeks. I think there's a lot of content, actually. So it might be six weeks. And then after that, we're going to, if they can, they can ask any questions they want, they're going to get all the information I have. And after that, I'm also thinking about giving the group. So for example, if there was a group of 25 people who go through the session, after that, they will get a conference call with me once a week for the next month. So they're on track following the plan that they developed during the, the teaching. Yeah, that accountability is important because, yeah. Very. Because like, you know, we go to university, you write notes, and after you write the test, you forget about it. But financial literacy is too important to just learn it and forget about it. You need to take action. It's just so, it's just too important. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree with that too. It's, it's fundamental, especially. And like the sooner you can stop yourself from going into a big debt trap, uh, yeah, better really. So yeah. <laughs> that's true. No, that's so anyway, that's what I'm working on. So yeah. that'd be exciting. And I was, I just wanted to comment because I think when you mentioned the number, uh, even like Dunbar's number, 150, even nothing more than bigger than that, because it's just going to be too much. And then you mentioned 30. So I imagine these, the first people that get into this are going to get so much value out of it, Jim. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I think, I think, uh, I, I, I've been to university lectures and online lectures with hundreds of people and I get nothing out of it. I might as well just read the book myself because they're just speaking at me at that point. I'm, I am student number 107. I mean, who, who knows, yeah. right? Yeah, that's a good point. And so just before we dive into your stories and give you the stage, sure. what's your current take on the real estate market as of now, <laughs> just based on the data and the information that you've been reading? Uh, from the the only thing I've noticed is that the real estate market is actually fairly strong. Inventory in the condo market downtown Toronto is weakening. Uh, inventory is shot up. And so when you say inventory, um, is that houses that are empty that people have not purchased yet? Uh, it's basically condos that are for sale that are either not rented or not being lived in. Okay. And uh, it seems the inventory is going up. Um, rents are going down. Rents are going up in the suburbs. So in North York, they're going up. So North York was ranked number one in Canada in terms of rents for one bedroom and two bedrooms. So they're ranked number one in the country, which is insane. Wow. Uh, I live in North York, so I don't particularly think it's that special, but apparently in terms of uh, a rental uh, cost, it's the highest uh, in the country. And Toronto has dropped down to second, Toronto proper, downtown, um, because everyone doesn't need to go to school anymore. They can work from home, everyone's pushing out to the surrounding areas and that's causing the prices around here to go up. Do I see anything else? I think uh, months of inventory is up to like five, five months of inventory, which is, you know, to put it in context, the amount of months of inventory that was available to me when I was buying rental properties in the US was over 10. So that's double what it is now. So I, I don't see a, I don't see any kind of panic selling in general. 
but it does seem like there are some subsets of people who may have taken on a little bit too much leverage or assumed too much in rent in the downtown core right. who are looking to get out. And and that's kind of where you might just see like mortgage deferrals kind of in time with, with those? Probably. Yeah. Probably, yeah. But other than that, I've always had my eye open. Uh, the U.S. real estate market is actually super strong, uh, primarily because, for example, in Phoenix, uh, the amount of inventory that's usually available to a home buyer is about 25,000 doors wow. uh, usually available at any one time. It's down by two thirds. It's down to like less than 9,000 available because people don't want to show their houses in a in this virus crisis and have people walking all over the place. Sure. You know, they don't know where these strangers have been. They're walking all over their house, looking at different things. You have 10 showings a day. They don't want that. So they're just saying, listen, we're not looking to sell. We're going to sit tight. And that's causing inventory to collapse and house uh, prices in that area to skyrocket, which is, you know, so, the yeah. opposite of what you would think yeah. in this crisis. Right. I guess good for owners, but at the same time, it's like they, they can wait it out. Yeah, bad for uh, home buyers, first-time home buyers, new graduates. It's it's just uh, unfortunate, but that's what the market's doing. Wow, that's true, and that's I just I kind of connected that dot, but like it, it's true. It's important to look at the market and see what the market's saying because, like you say, trying to make a product that the market didn't ask for, it's just going to be you know not necessarily time or money well used. Yeah, and that's one of the lessons I learned over like the last thirty years. A lot of people in the past, I would say my parents' generation, it was the saying was build it and they will come right build it and that's a that's a very I common phrase that too. yeah exactly right? build it and they will come but it doesn't work that way anymore in in the age of internet and immediate information it is give them what they want and they will come and if you build it it could possibly most likely 99 percent chance that they won't come because you didn't ask them what they wanted <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point i gotta ask a lot more questions in my stories i think now <laughs> <laughs> it well just said. makes sense too it makes it makes sense too like for myself too like if i don't want something i don't really care if i see it or not like uh, yeah no it's so true <laughs> but i mean it, it, there, there are days and times and periods where you're like oh you know i can't think of something or i'm not sure and it, it doesn't hurt to ask hey what do you guys yeah. want me to cover next exactly and i think um with the internet it's actually um the, a po the positive of that is that because the internet has such far reach, like your phone could connect you with anyone around the world effectively. Yeah. Uh, which is not, wasn't possible just, you know, 30 years ago. So that your phone can connect you with any customer around the planet. And um, you can, no matter what your interest is, it, it could be in, um, you know, hats. It could be in, it could be in beer, craft beer. It could be, in, in stickers, it could be anything, and you will find an audience. So it doesn't even matter. Like in the past, it was like, oh, if I build a comic shop, will people come? Well, I don't know. You know, how many comic shop uh, aficionados are there in the neighborhood? <laughs> right. Like, I have no idea, right? But now, if you're interested in comics and you're totally dedicated and you knew everything about comics and you built something online, you have the entire planet that will be able to find you. And they do because those type of people who love that type of content will seek you out. Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. And I think that's probably the best thing you can tell young people, especially out of school that like, hey, this is what the internet can do. Yeah. A lot of people are like, I don't think anyone will like that. Listen, there's 7 billion people. There are going to be a lot of people like, yeah, and that's just an opinion. I mean, you don't know if anyone's going to like that or not. You can you settle no with idea. that opinion yeah. if you want. It's not going to get you very far. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. 
And that's a lot. And that's another thing. A lot of entrepreneurs actually sabotage themselves. It's actually not the market that sabotages them. It's them thinking, oh, I don't have enough time. I don't think the idea is good. No one's going to like it. And they, before they even get started, they've already shut themselves down. <laughs> That's the surprising thing. It's not actually the market or the customer or money that shuts them down. It's themselves. Like I would say nine out of 10 times. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I, I can think to instances where I've done that myself. Um, you know, even just because it's like, you might feel tired, or another yeah. circumstance. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, you know, as long as you're not making it a habit of stopping the consistency, uh, it doesn't hurt. Yeah. But it's just funny that you mentioned that, because even like, yesterday, I posted a meme, and it's actually gotten some good traction. So my thought process... I love your meme. Uh, thank you, Jim. <laughs> Your memes make me laugh every time I look. Good. I don't know where you come up with those things. <laughs> I'm lucky. They just kind of pop up in the morning. But today I was like, you know what? I'm not going to post just to let that meme gain some traction. But then I have a post ready. So I'm like, oh, maybe I should just like, you know, it's it's almost me stopping myself if I'm thinking about it as opposed to just putting it out there, right? Yes, so. yes. Yeah, you just put it out. Because some people think like, yeah. oh, if I put all my ideas out there, I'm going to run out of ideas. Right? Some people are afraid of that. Um, there's two things I can say to that about people being afraid to put out uh, content is you need to get used to it. Yeah. I mean, in a globally connected environment, you're going to need to get used to promoting what you like and promoting who you are. And number two, if you're afraid of losing, running out of ideas, it could be that you don't know the area well enough. So that encourages you, you to learn. And actually that's content right there. Content of you learning new things is content. True. That's, that's, that's content. And number three is um, ideas never run out. You can always say something with a different spin. You can always say something uh, with a different meme or tone or a different angle. Uh, so content never runs out any more than shades of colors run out. Great point. And it's true. It's just going to get stronger the more you practice how you're delivering it, right? Yeah, you must be. You must have done like thousands of memes because they seem to come instantly for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> memes are hilarious. Well, thanks. And, and you know what? I'm lucky because a lot of the days, like I, I used to pre-plan my content, and okay. now I just I don't. But I have pre-planned times in my day where it's yes. like, okay, time to make that meme, and I've just made them the day of. So I'm lucky. They just come to me in the morning. I'm going to keep showing up so that they come. <laughs> and the thing is, I don't know if you found it, but. You probably the ideas probably come more fluid after you've done oh yeah a uh, hundred memes as opposed to two way more it's, it's much easier and like same with tweets same with even like TikTok ideas a lot of it just comes now and I can you know even if I spend a few minutes scrolling through the app before I post yeah looking at what others someone else might have put it'll help yeah. me curate an idea that you know would be relevant for my audience in a different exactly in a different spin spin or light so yeah. So definitely, I think uh, the, the practice uh, has, helps a lot. That was a surprise to me, even. I knew the concepts of what I'm telling you, but um, I was a little concerned that I would run out of ideas. But now it's almost the opposite. It's like I, I can actually keep pushing out content. I have to stop myself. <laughs> I got to remember, I got a family and a daughter to take care of. I got to stop. I got to shut this thing down. That's amazing. Don't let, yeah, don't get too ahead of yourself. <laughs> I know. Well, it's good. And uh, I, I do think it's like, because once you build up the momentum, you feel it that you can keep it going. But it, it's good to know that you can always go back to it. And if you need to take a break and whatnot. So yeah, it's still there. Uh, yeah, it's still there. And, and it just makes you smarter because of it at the end of the day, right? That's what's great. Yeah. Um, thank you, Jim. So here, let's dive in because I, I know we've only got about 20 minutes left. So we talked okay. about your story and your money philosophies last episode, and we didn't get to cover a lot of your real estate investments. 
Sure. Um, so would you be able to walk us through, uh, I think I mentioned to you, the process of buying three of your investment properties? Okay, so I was listening to, uh, a lot of times I listen to social media influencers and they say things that I did, but I never vocalized it. Okay. So uh, uh, Chris Cron mentioned, for example, most people, they get their job and then they buy their one house and then they go on from there. I, and he says, I challenge you to buy two homes, like take your budget and buy two of them. Just push yourself to live a little more frugally, have an investment property as well as your primary residence. And when he said that, I was like, that's obvious, but it wasn't obvious because he was making a video talking about it and how, you know, this would put you further ahead in the future. Right. But that is exactly what I did uh, when I was, when I graduated and I was, uh, in my late 20s or early 30s looking for a home. I, I, all my peers, all my friends, uh, relatives, they took their money, put a big down payment, and bought a home. Oh, and probably and, stretched their mortgages on it too. Yeah. So, well, or, or they, they just they just poured everything into that primary residence. And right. and I knew back then that your home is not an investment. It's, it's pure shelter. Like once I buy that home, after I pay all those costs, I'm going to have ongoing monthly costs too. I'm going to have to carry it, right? So right. I actually took my budget, cut it in half. I bought an investment property as well as my own home. So instead of living at that time, condos were the popular thing. Everyone was buying two bedroom condos, you know, 1200 square feet, 1400 square feet. Condos back then were bigger. Right. Um, and, um, I said, you know, I'm not going to do that. I don't, why do I need a 1400 square foot place? I'm like single. It's just me. I don't need two bedrooms, two bathrooms, a den and all this other stuff. A bathroom for the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A bathroom for the bathroom. So I said, I just need a one bedroom, uh, maybe one bedroom and den. I'm going to buy two of them instead of one, two plus one. Smart. So I did that. I bought one to live in and I bought one as an investment and and Chris, uh, the social media guy I was talking, referring to earlier, was right. Like that investment started uh, me on my road to investing in real estate. I started studying the numbers behind real estate. And then at that, that condo provided the seed money for my investments into the U.S. Because I purchased real estate in the 90s when Toronto was coming out of their last real estate crash. Right. So most people born this century don't know about that, but the last crash ended 96-ish and prices started going up and it's up to this day. Right. And so you, and, you got these two condos, those were in Toronto, right? Downtown? So that's the, that's, a, that's a story in and of itself. So one was in North York and one was downtown. Okay. So the weird thing is like during a crash, prices between downtown and a suburb are the same. They're identical. Okay. There's no difference. Right yeah. now, if you go downtown, it's, you know, anywhere from a thousand to fourteen hundred a square foot. Whereas up here is maybe half, half that. North York might be like eight hundred a square foot, you know, tops out at a thousand a square foot. And this is like about that. twenty-four years since the last crash. So that just goes to show how much time makes a difference in like increasing those values. That's right. And so back then, um, the prices were close to three hundred and forty dollars a square foot. And that didn't matter if you were downtown or in a suburb like North York. It was the same. You would see a one-bedroom for like three forty a square foot, and then you'd go up north and you would see a one-bedroom for like three thirty a square foot. Wow! It, it, and then you would be thinking, so that's exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking, well, one of them is overvalued and one is undervalued. I don't know which one, but I think the downtown one should be worth more, but it's not. 
so that's what I bought one to live in in the suburbs and I bought one to carry uh, as an investment downtown by the financial district. I love that just because right there it's like well Jim that was the first step and you know having, yeah. having the two different plays just skyrockets your net worth already like that so that's right and, and it gives you resources for your next play. Uh, so that was my first real estate investment. The, the second one didn't happen until the U.S. housing market crash, which was probably 10 years later after that. So before that, there was a dot-com crash. So I was fully invested in stocks, started buying more, I was focused there. Then things got quiet, 2004, 2005, 2006. Everything was quiet. Everything was booming. And when things are booming, my activity goes down. Because there's nothing really for me to do. Um, <laughs> assets that. are compounding. There's, there's nothing to do. There's nothing to do. You, I mean, you could look for deals, but they're harder to find. You have to tolerate uh, worse returns. Uh, so it, I almost found that it's almost a waste of my time. I mean, I, I did. I did run to kind of enjoy the what you've reaped so far, right? I guess as well. Yeah, I mean, because there's no choice. You can't do anything else anyway. I would drive around only to waste my time looking at a property, running the numbers, and then finding out that it's not a deal. So, you know, you do that. I did it. I was young and I was eager. I even drove up to Wyerton to look at a private business. I don't even know if you know where Wyerton is. Not from Toronto. No, I don't. How far? Okay. So Wyerton is up north. Wyerton Willie is that hedgehog that they pull out in February to see if there's six more weeks of winter or summer's going to come early. Right. So they have that. <laughs> they have that whatever hedgehog event. I don't even know what whatever it's it like is. Like Groundhog you know, Day. Groundhog, yeah, groundhog yeah, Day. Sorry, the Groundhog <laughs> Hedgehog. <laughs> so I was up there looking at businesses. I was everywhere looking for a deal, but I couldn't. I couldn't find anything because when the markets are booming, everyone wants top dollar. So that's so important. Just why cash is so like valuable in these times. Gosh, yeah. love it. So then, so so then, the, when I got into real estate, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, tenth, the re, all the rest of the deals happened during the credit crisis. I was having lunch with one of my friends. Uh, he's a Bay Street trader, and we were having lunch. And he said his parents were looking for a condo in Vegas. This was 2009. He says the U.S. market is destroyed. It's a completely destroyed. Nobody's buying houses. Houses are just left on the market for months, if not years on end. And his parents are thinking of maybe being a snowbird in Vegas. He says, you should check it out. I mean, you, you like real estate. You always talk about real estate. Why don't you go check out to see if it's actually a deal? Let me know, right? So right. I go down there and I said, oh my goodness, I could not believe the deals. Like homes in Toronto at that time, 2009, were going for approximately 500 a square foot, right? Five okay. to 600 a square foot. Homes in uh, Nevada and Arizona were going for $50 a square foot, a tenth. A tenth. Oh my God, a tenth. That's... And then I told my friend, I said, your parents are right. <laughs> it is it is decimated there. And I'm not talking about like slum areas or C-class locations or D-class. Lo I'm talking about solid B-class locations like a North York. Well, talk like... about taking advice from a good friend too, right? Like knowing the right advice when you hear it. Yeah. So he's like, he's like, you should check it out because uh, – it could be a good price. He goes, I'm going to go down to Vegas and check it out for my parents. Uh, you should check it out too. So I looked at Nevada. Nevada was fantastic, but I moved over and looked at Arizona because I didn't, I didn't want, ironically, Vegas party in the virus crisis now. No, I, I didn't want short-term rentals. I didn't want vacation Smart. people. Good point. I, I wanted people who lived in the area, worked in the area, raised their kids, went to school, went to work. So I picked Phoenix and again, 
whole, entire detached homes were selling for less than a luxury SUV in Canada. Huh. Less than an SUV. Like you can either buy a $60,000 luxury SUV in Canada, or you can find a detached home in Phoenix in a B-class area for 60 grand. That's wild. Wow. So I said, I am buying houses. <laughs> I'm going to buy these houses. And uh, I just kept buying them. That's all it was. It was just like, as soon as I wrote a contract on one, I'd be writing a contract on another. So like every three months, I would like go through the process of inspection, appraisal, close, right. inspection. So every three months, like clockwork, boom, another one, boom, another one, boom. And, another and was one. there a time on. period between like when you would say close on a house and then you would actually be able to get people into it? Was, was that a problem at that same time? Well, everyone lost their houses. They all became renters. Everyone became a renter. Right. So then they have to pay the owner, which is you. Yeah, that's me. So everyone, there was no shortage of renters. It was, that's the weird thing. When people lose their homes, they still need a place to live. Wow. I never thought of that. Yeah, of course. They're not owners anymore. They're just not paying the bank's mortgage. It's just. That's right. But they still need a place to live. Yeah. So, so uh, tenants were very easy to find. um, And you would buy a home say for, um, so one of my friends from Minnesota, he bought a 50 unit home, 50 unit apartment building. Okay. So a whole building, gotcha. A whole building. So in each unit he paid, so that, just think of like a condo or apartment or whatever. So each two bedroom, two, all of them are two bed, two bath. And they were selling uh, for um, 30,000 a door. So 1.5 million which is the price of a nice home in Toronto. Not an expensive home, just a nice home in Toronto. Yeah. He got a 50-unit apartment building. For $1.5 million. <laughs> For $1.5 million, which he paid for in cash. And he's from Minnesota. He paid it for in cash. And each door, each door um, of the 50 doors was rented. He rented it out very quickly for seven fifty a month. Right, so he was pulling in almost forty thousand dollars a month. Wow! Uh, by buying that, and so those were the type of returns that were available. the The amount of money he was he was pulling in. So he put down one point five, but he was pulling in per year almost half a million, pulling in a third of the purchase price in rent. So he's going to pay, pay that off in like three years, exactly. Well, he paid it in cash, so he didn't have to pay off anything. Back then during the credit crisis, it was very difficult to get a loan. It was called the credit crisis because banks didn't want to lend people money. Okay, good point. They got burned. They, they got burned, right? They, they, they yeah. All these houses, millions of homeowners lost their homes. They, the banks had to take them back. Gotcha. So if you went to a bank and said, hey, I'd like to borrow money for a home, they would be like, get out. Right. And, but that's just crazy. So he put that down cash with, you know, by 2012, he's made his money back and now he's right now he's charging regular rents and just it's straight profit. That's oh. I know it's insane. So, so back then it's the same thing. I was just on a smaller scale. So every home I picked up, it was exactly like that. I would put down 50,000, but I could pay back the home. I mean, I didn't have a, a mortgage on it. Like I said, they weren't lending, but the, the, the revenue from the home would cover the entire purchase price in three or four years. And it, for people that don't look for deals very often, that is one hell of a deal. <laughs> yes, right. So, so, um, nice. So if you, you have to be able to identify the deal. So basically that's, Jim, that's just, wanna, just before we get there, how many did you end up buying in, in that first kind of discovery? I bought it. I bought it. I, I don't know. It's a lot. Um, every three months, like I said, I was closing on a home. So, 
Right. Like, like as soon as I can get the money, like I was so desperate for money to buy homes that I sold my downtown condo. I sold another property I had, I invested uh, out in the West end. Like I sold my Canadian assets to buy these because not only were house prices down by 70%, because that's already a deal, right? 70% down. Yeah. But the Canadian dollar appreciated by 40%. Oh, so it was one-to-one. And in some cases, when I bought some homes, the Canadian dollar was stronger than and the I remember American. that. I remember when that was, like, I used to go shopping in the U.S. because that was kind of cool as a kid when you get your driver's license going to, like, Syracuse and Rochester. <laughs> yeah. The Canadian dollar would actually go further than the U.S. dollar. <laughs> That's right. So it was a short window. I was buying before that, but I was also buying after that. And I remember I was like, wow, this is actually cheaper for me to buy a home in Phoenix on so many levels, Amazing. including the currency exchange. Yeah. And I mean, that, just to the point, sorry, that like it's, you know, people think you have to hit a home run with everything. And it's like, you don't. You just have to make a few solid investments when you when the opportunity comes, right? That's right. That's right. So that, that, that all, all goes back to financial literacy, to be able to identify a deal, to be able to recognize that, uh, to structure your investments in tax-free, tax-deferred, and a storage uh, facility in order to take advantage of opportunity when they come up. So uh, it sounds simple, but it's like saying like, well, you know, that, that pro baseball player is so good because he hits home runs, as if that's the only thing he's practiced for like 30 years or right. 20 years. Right. But but, you know, they've already done all the groundwork. They've already, you know, their baseball literacy and their mind muscle connections and their reflexes and experience, everything just ties in together. And all of a sudden they have like over 100 RBIs and all this stuff and, you know, on base percentage, you know, which is crazy and all that stuff. So but, you know, everyone just sees the home runs. But really, it's like 99 percent of the groundwork and the one percent is the execution. Yeah, seriously. Well, thank you for that perspective, Jim. That's amazing. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll cover the, the first one. And then the second, was there a third or uh, any any other? Oh, well, that's pretty much just I was just buying in the States. So I bought in Phoenix. And then when I when when the market recovered, when the market recovered in Phoenix, I moved over to uh, Tennessee. Tennessee right. was because the, the recovery was uneven. Right. So right. Phoenix recovered faster because it has a larger population and more jobs. Uh, Tennessee recovered later because uh, they have smaller population and perhaps not as a robust job market, but it's still strong. And now that has recovered. As of four years ago, uh, Tennessee is pretty much just motoring along. Uh, and right now, if people were looking in the States to buy property, they would have to look in a probably a tertiary market, like an Arkansas or something like that. It's, it's, it's pretty much recovered. Fair, yeah. And well, again, again it's not necessarily the right time to go shopping then if, if you don't have the the liquid the liquidity to do so and, and the opportunity so we're back to where i was i feel like how it was when it was 2005 everything is just sort of deals are um harder to find and i just sort of I'm not doing anything well at least now you've got social media to share your knowledge right yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, i got another hobby now because of the lockdowns yeah well there you go um, cool. I got a few more questions and it's, sure. a, it's a great question, but here I wanted to ask you like, just as someone, uh, because I think as well, financial literacy, so much about self-control. So it's like, you know, yeah, a big psychological component, a big psychological component that just go, gets overlooked. So do you have any habits that you've committed to doing every day or every week that are like non-negotiables? You know, it's, so there's two different things, right? It's how you, how you view money, right? So a lot yeah. of people, most people, there's the reason why there's a separation between the 90% and the top 10% is that 
how people view money. So if you grew up in a family where it was scarce, money was scarce, job loss was catastrophic, uh, you know, you're saving like two grams of ice cream, you know, you have a whole two liter container, but there's only like two grams of ice cream in the freezer and your, your ketchup is upside down because you want to squeeze out the last two ounces. Like if, if that kind of scarcity mindset is all around you, like don't right. throw, eat, eat all your food, you know, even though you're full, you just keep eating, you know, stuff it down your mouth, you know, like yeah. it's, it's, you're, you're having an emotional, you are building an emotional relationship with money, which is not helpful if you want to be wealthy. All the wealthy people that I've met do not have an emotional relationship with money. Right. Money is viewed as a tool. They don't have an emotional rea- uh, uh, relationship with a with a wrench or with a hammer. Like <laughs> you don't have an emotional, like a hammer is like, listen, I need to hang up a picture, grab a hammer, put a nail in the wall, hang up my picture, right? It's not like, oh my goodness, I got to take care of this hammer. Make sure I, <laughs> like it's not. <laughs> well, I can't put this hammer away. It might run. I can't put it away. I got to hold on to it because, you know, what happens if I lose the hammer? How am I going to put up pictures? It's not like that. So people have an emotional relationship with money, which sabotages their ability to build wealth. Because when you're emotional, for example, in a card game like poker, you will lose. Yeah. You will lose horribly because you're, you, your emotions will be on your face. You'll be taken advantage of. You won't be able to, to go all in because you're scared. So I think psychologically speaking, those habits have to be developed early. And I developed them when I was a teenager, when I started learning about the differences between how the wealthy view money versus my parents, my friends, my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that habit was ingrained early. It was like, okay, I, I shouldn't hold on to money. Uh, you did a video about money being a current. You can't hold on to a current. The, the money will flow right. in and it will flow out. The problem is people who have a scarcity mindset, they think they can hold on to money where even if you can hold on to $100 in your hand physically, inflation is taking it out without you even seeing it. it doesn't, you don't even need to hold on to it. It is, it is going away. Um, and, and the wealthy people don't care, and they recognize that, and they say, listen, I know how to mitigate that. I'm going to look at investments. I'm going to use this tool to help me defeat inflation as opposed to my only resource is to hold on to it. My only recourse is to hold on to it. Yeah. And uh, ninety—that's why there is a—that's that, why there is the one percent. The one percent don't view money that way. That that you have to like hang. On. That's the only way to to do it is to hang on to it. Yeah, that's big. No, that, that that's a great point. Uh, thanks for sharing that because you know it's true. It, I think it just comes down to at least because if you don't have that relationship with money established, every other kind of you know part can kind of fall back into that that emotional part. So I think that's the perfect habit to establish at least. I totally agree. That's why one of the biggest components of my coaching course will be the psychological relationship you build. But I, I'm going to have to deprogram yeah, the people literally. who attend to, to who attend uh, my multi-day uh, online course. All the subconscious and probably conscious relationships lessons that they learned about money from their parents or from their teacher. That's going to be key number one because without that foundation the rest of the house i can give you all the tools and metrics and calculations to build the perfect house but if your foundation is crap it's not going to stand up anyway that's a great analogy yeah thank you jim now so i got a few more for you just quickly curious because you post uh some content with tim hortons uh (laughs) or your coffee so how much do you spend on timmy's a month 
probably like a hundred bucks a month. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Is that a lot? I don't know. Is that a lot? I don't think so. I mean, there's only 30 days in a month. So as long as you've, I'm sure you've probably divvied it up or at least have that, an idea. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I'm, I was thinking about that question because I actually didn't know. And I was thinking uh, a coffee is not that much. It's like a two bucks. Well, it's good. You don't have to think about it because I'm sure you have probably your, you know, you're spending money allocated. So it's just like, oh, it's just coffee. It just adds to it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how do you take your coffee? Medium, double, double, like 90% of other Canadians? Two cream, one sugar. Once I realized that cr- cream actually has sugar, I used to take double double, two cream, two sugar. Oh. But then when I realized that cream actually has a lot of sugar, I was like, oh, I could cut down my sugar by just having cream. One half of that. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't even realize that. I didn't know either. <laughs> well, I'm a typical Canadian. I did spend a year and a half working at a Tim Hortons. So it's just. Oh, get out. Oh, yeah. Well, that's where I, I developed my coffee love or my love for coffee. <laughs> And that's where I realized there were customers that liked, you know, extra large five milk or five cream, five sugar. And it just, wow, my mind. that's a cake. That's not coffee anymore. That that's is a cake. That is a cake. Uh, I'll, would you like a donut with your order of diabetes? Yeah. And they'd be like, do I look slim with this cup in my hand? Apologies to all the people out there who are drinking five cream and five sugar. No, I know. But it's just like, there, there are ways to, to maintain a healthier kind of diet. And that cutting that back would be one of them. But hey, you know, drink whatever coffee you want. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah um, that's crazy. I didn't know that. It's cool. Yeah. Well, it, it opened. Yeah. It's just one of those things that you learn from having that experience. And uh, well, hey, people love their Tim Hortons in Canada, right? It's there you go. Quite you the go. brand. And so lastly, just before we go, is there anything you learned sure. recently that you think is worth sharing or that you want people to know? Well, I'm just learning about like I, right now I'm, I'm starting up my third business, okay. uh, my third um, business. And this one's going to be the only business that's online because the first one was a consulting business. The second one was real estate, which is brick and mortar. And this third one is actually online. So I'm learning a lot about how the market is driven. Back in 30 years ago, if you wanted to get a customer, you'd go to trade shows, conferences, you'd talk to people, you would like just int- you would network a lot. But right now, the vast majority of our customers are going to be online. The people who were like like I was when I was a teenager, looking, starving for financial knowledge, financial literacy information, finding out how to set up the proper mindset and the investments and the accounts and tax-free and tax-deferred and registered and unregistered. Right. They're all online. And they don't know anything. And if you go into a bank, the unfortunate thing is you're going to be paired up with a salesperson and they're just going to sell you this and that. So I'm building a course that I think that I would have used when I was a teenager. And I'm only building things that the marketplace has told me they wanted. Never, ever, ever try and tell the market what they should want. You never, ever tell the market what they should want, because that's the worst way to start a business. The best way is to talk to your customers about what you're interested in, and they will tell you what they want. Yeah, that's a great point. Because I mean, and, and you know what, I've, I've invested a lot of time in making products that people never asked for, but at least it taught me a lot. <laughs> but like now that I'm going <laughs> forward... I've done exactly that. So I'm like, okay, well, you know, at least I have the content. I can recycle it, but it's definitely a good lesson learned. So that's a great point. And, and, and if you did it wrong the first way, that doesn't mean you can't switch gears. For, for example, let's say I built something that I thought people wanted yeah. and I gave it out, right? Um, at that point, uh, no, no one will buy it probably. And then 
but that point I can say, I can, I can start reaching out to my customers and turn the process around and say, what didn't you like about it? What prevented you from learning more about it, engaging with it, buying it? Uh, what would you have preferred instead? Um, uh, you know, and then, yeah. and then you can just sort of turn that ship around and just sort of reframe it to what they want. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, hey, man, at least it's there and I've done it though. So I have the that's know-how right. and that, that's the important takeaway. But yes. Um, I think you highlighted it well, though. Everything, yeah, things are going to change online. So there's no reason to wait to get comfortable, you know, sharing your knowledge. Better to get it up yeah. there and practice. You don't even need the money. Like, I mean, no. as long as you have a phone, you can reach customers. Everyone's that's, a media company, right? It's true. That's right. Potentially, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thank, <laughs> thanks so much for coming on, Jim. So where can people find you online? So they can find me on TikTok. So tiktok.com slash at Jim Chong, J-I-M-C-H-U-O-N-G. And uh, I'm on TikTok there with, uh, again, over 60,000 followers. We have over almost 2,000 subscribers to our mail list. If you click on the link in my bio, I provide daily content on improving financial literacy, not leaving your work per se, but at least giving people the options or more options than just my boss keeps me or my boss fires me. Yeah. Like more options than that in order to, to spend more time with to what's important for that person, family, hobbies, travel. Well, the time eating. you get, the good time you get to spend with yours now, right? Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So and um, Jim dot Chong on, on Instagram, right? Correct. So uh, Jim dot Chong on Instagram. Perfect. Everyone listening, I definitely go check out Jim. His, his content is short, sweet, but he covers so much. I'm sure you can find some good videos and it is very eye-opening. So um, definitely check that out. And Jim, just before you go, any last piece of advice? No, I mean, uh, thanks for reaching out to me. I really appreciate it, Jordan. I, I think you're, you're, I, I follow you as well on Instagram and on TikTok, and I think your content is, is fantastic. You, you always, you're one of the probably the few content makers where when I, when I look at your Instagram, I actually laugh out loud. Like, I actually, I, I think I've messaged you a couple times on some of them. I'm like, where do you get this stuff? Yeah. And uh, you're one of the few content makers where, where I actually uh, really enjoy visiting because I know I get a chuckle. Thanks, Jim. Well, I love the feedback, and it's, it's exactly that that keeps me going. So I'll, uh, I'll keep those memes coming on time then. <laughs> awesome. Great. Take care, man. Thanks, Jordan. And that is it for episode 66, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that. And for any investing content or real estate, go check out Jim. You will learn a lot from his short clips. And he definitely has some different perspectives and angles, but they're very worthwhile and uh, definitely worth considering. So you can find this podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Radio Public, and at anchor.fm slash highly invested. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with any friends or like-minded individuals. Just want to help spread the knowledge. And if you really enjoyed this episode, please make sure you go leave a rating or review. I love to know who's listening and it helps my podcast get seen. And I do really appreciate it. Okay, everyone. So thank you so much for tuning in. This is your host, Jordan Hiley, signing off. Stay highly invested in yourselves, everybody. Till next time.